Hi, this is Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today with my sister, Debbie Shore. Deb, thanks for being back. I'm excited to talk about beer and coffee. Yes, we usually talk about food and wine, but today, beer and coffee. And we're here with Greg Engert, who is a partner in the Neighborhood Restaurant Group and the beer director for the Neighborhood Restaurant Group and some amazing restaurants that uh, if you live anywhere near the Washington area, like you get to enjoy Church Key and Birch and Barley and others. And it's just a real treat to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, And we've got in San Francisco today, uh, Jacob Jabers from Phil's Coffee. And um, Jacob, my sister really is a connoisseur of coffee. So you're going to have, and beer too. So you're going to have your your work cut out for you. Uh, She already knows what makes Phil so special, but we're going to want to hear you talk about it as well. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, uh, Greg, let me start with you. You were just telling me that you're from upstate New York, mm-hmm. where I just was in kind of the Mohawk. Is it called the Mohawk Valley? Or just yeah, Mohawk, it is. Yeah, Mo- absolutely. Mohawk Valley area, which is beautiful. Um, tell me how you got to D.C. And I know you got into beer a little bit because of your dad. I've read a little bit about you. Uh-huh, it seems like yeah. he was a big influence. Yeah. Uh, but you you may know more about beer than just about anybody <laughs> I've ever met. So where did this all begin? Well, it's uh, it's a it's been a long circuitous journey and an amazing one. But yeah, I grew up in upstate New York, uh, and my father, from an early age, was always drinking better than his friends, and that's something that I remember. You know, he but was. You could tell that as a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could because <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't just drinking the ubiquitous Bud Light and, and Miller Light and the stuff that you saw in the commercials all the time. He had weird beers that I'd never heard of and uh, coming in in odd shaped bottles like growlers and things like that so he was always interested in you know Billy doesn't know what a growler is I know I what a growler is oh, okay sorry <laughs> it's a glass I just bought wow. a, yeah. I just bought a, a growler of root beer actually on Mohegan Island that's how I know so yeah and so we had uh we were blessed to have some really cool uh beer distributors up in that area in upstate New York that were into craft early so in the late 80s early 90s uh, brands like Sierra Nevada, Harpoon, Sam Adams that are everywhere now and have uh, become mainstream were unheard of. And that's what my dad was drinking. So I always had this kind of interest and I wanted to know more about that. Uh, I went to school in Vermont, Middlebury College. And that's where I was educated to become, to begin to become an English professor. So that was my original, uh, academia was my original goal. I started there, I was on my way, but I was also introduced to some amazing early craft beer uh, people and, and, and some great, great craft beers from, you know, this is late 90s, early 2000s. So Vermont Pub and Brewery, uh, who was, which was run by Greg Noonan at the time, who has passed away since. He was one of the really early uh, guys behind amazing craft beer in the U.S. Uh, that's a place I started to go to a lot. Middlebury has its own brewery, Otter Creek Brewing Company, so I got to drink that. And don't get me wrong, it's not like we were just drinking the good stuff. It was like a balance. You know, we'd spend a little bit of money on Otter Creek Copper Ale, which had flavor uh, and was memorable. And then we would just cut it with Bush Light and all the other stuff that so college you didn't, kids drink. So you didn't have 3 2 beer? No, 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 no. That's we, what we had a drink in Ohio. Three, oh, re- 3 2 oh, beer. Oh, really? Yes. And you'd Big Kings didn't ha- and Little Kings. Oh, my God. Did those even ring a bell? No. The Kings, yeah. And when you talk about craft beer, I want to hasten to say, not that I don't know what that is, yeah. sister, but wh- wh- when you talk about craft beer, how should people understand what that it's, means? It, that's a loaded uh, question. Honestly, it's become kind of politicized. You know, people want craft beer. You see it everywhere, right? Yeah, craft well, beer it's become popular. Right. It's become profitable. And so now it's a, it's a term that a lot of people want to get behind or appropriate for themselves. How I define craft beer is something that when you taste it and when you and, and also when you taste it and you learn about the companies behind it, 
it is a flavor first mentality. Profit comes last. Flavor is the thing that drives every decision. And, and frankly, these people were crazy. Back in the late 70s and early 80s in the U.S., to get behind a business for passion's sake alone was what everyone was doing. There was no profitability in this. Sierra Nevada, Ken Grossman started that in the late 70s because he just wanted to homebrew. He wanted to take homebrew beer that he made that he liked better, that tasted better, to the masses. He wanted more people to drink it. There was no reason it should have succeeded at the time, and it was a very difficult road to hoe. And back then, in 79, there were about 80 breweries in the U.S., owned by probably six companies, right? These are profit-driven machines of industry that were just, just you know, producing clean, um, flavorless I was going to say, not, in- not interesting. Not interesting. Not no. interesting. no, they are, they yeah. are yeah, like, uh, you know, they're not polarizing. They're just clean um, conveyors of mild intoxication uh, upon which advertising can work. And that's what people were drinking like crazy. There are 80 then. Today, there are 7,000 breweries in the United States. So craft came on when people decided to say, we care about what we are eating and drinking again. You know, people care, obviously, about what coffee they drink today, cheeses they eat, wines they drink, spirits, cocktails. Everything has come on over these past like 30, 40 years. And craft has gone that way. So how I define craft is stuff that people pour passion into for the sake of it and the things that we should want to drink so and the people we should want to support. So it's more it's more art than commerce, really, right? I mean, it's like yeah. it's like an artist who's, you know, they're not worried about At its, it's base, sell. And certainly it's... back then, those guys, they were crazy. The men and women behind craft in the late 70s and 80s, it was purely that. Now, today, it's not a hobby. You have to pay the bills to continue to uh, produce these great beers. But certainly, yes. I mean, at the end of the day, if a decision is to be made about should we make some money on this one or make something that we want to drink, it's always going to be the latter for me. And you can taste that. And, in and consumption is way up, right? Because, yeah, because of now that, there's yeah. you know, like flavors that people who didn't like the generic, the oh, Pabst totally. or the Iron City or the whatever, now like all these flavors, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let me ask Jacob, as CEO of Phil's Coffee, does that ring a bell in terms of, I mean, is Phil's a craft coffee? It's, I know you're kind of one cup at a time philosophy certainly makes it sound that way how would you define what you're doing i think it's been said pretty well uh for us you know our philosophy is that the best cup of coffee is the one that comes to your taste and every individual is a little bit different and what we have is a concept that allows us to personalize the coffee experience for each person so our blends act as a platform of variety of flavor and roast to meet the needs of a lot of different uh customers and you know, we, we have a, a multitude of ingredients that we can add and mix in to make sure it's perfect for each customer. So whether you're a connoisseur or someone who likes sweet coffee, we don't judge. We just want you to be happy. So we take a very people-oriented approach. On the back end, in terms of coffee quality, we, you know, to to the points made here, we take, it's, it's all about quality and flavor first. Uh, money's looked at second. Obviously, that has to be rationalized as we're a growing business, but um, it's all about making sure we never compromise on quality. And since day one, when my my dad was blending the beans to today, we do it we do it pretty much the same way with a little bit better technology. But there's been zero compromise, and if anything, just a continued elevation of quality. So we take that same philosophy and values approach on the back end, and in the front end in our stores, it's about the customer. And we want to make sure that we balance this artisanal movement with accessibility and friendliness because not everybody cares about um, the, the specifics. Uh, people just want to have a good cup of coffee or, or a good beer. 
And I think that what we want to make sure we can do is educate people and answer questions if they have them and allow them to discover um, the meaning behind the product, which will hopefully, you know, get them a little bit more passionate to learn more. But we don't want to push that on them because, uh, you know, not everybody cares about everything at the same same level. Well, I love that you both talk about passion so frequently uh, as part of our Add Passion and Stir podcast. Uh, Jacob, you mentioned uh, day one when your father was blending the beans. Tell us a little bit about day one. I know you've told your family story many times, but uh, not everybody knows it yet and uh, and how you got to end up being CEO. Sure. Um, so my dad came here when he was in the, in the U.S. when he was about 15 from the Middle East and grew up in a culture and environment where family and community was really, really important. So literally every night, um, neighbors would come over the house or they would go over neighbor's house and family's house and sit around a coffee table and have tea, food, and, and coffee. So the sense of connectedness and just the healthy social daily life was very much alive and healthy. So when my dad, but my dad want, you know, moved to the States, wanted to make something for himself, went to school, saved up enough money to open up a grocery store in the Mission District in San Francisco, where he worked really hard and, you know, eventually um, became pretty successful. And uh, But he wanted to do something more meaningful because he, he, he actually, when he was 11 years old, he used to sell coffee beans door to door. He used to purchase them from a older gentleman. He used to roast coffee and he used to sell it from sell it to just people in the neighborhood. So you know, both coffee and and community um, were a big part of his his life growing up. So he want he eventually transitioned, and it was very organic movement. The grocery store to the coffee shop. He started off by experimenting with different varietals and beans from around the world, and wanted to. And he visited over eleven hundred coffee shops. Not to eleven hundred over yes not wow. not not to try to um some the same some different but not to try to copy or or watch how people are doing things interestingly he was paying attention to is the store manager stressed what are the customers looking for are they happy or do they leave energized you know what what are they it really about what do people want and he really tried to marry his passion for coffee and the process of making it with what people wanted. So uh, that's why we don't even do espresso in our stores. Um, and if you think about in the early days, you know, espresso just became popular with the second wave coffee movement, the Starbucks of the world. Um, and how we, how, how, how we make the coffee today is all one cup at a time, handmade, and it's kind of like a bar. And um, we only started out with one little in the corner in the back of the grocery store, and he would pull customers who would buy like a gallon of milk and some eggs and say, hey, I've been working on some coffee. I would love for you to come and, and, and try this. So slowly, people uh, try it. more and more people tried it and loved it, um, and it grew organically. We removed one aisle at a time, took furniture from our house to create a living room space. My mom and dad would argue about it, but he is like, you know, he, he wanted to create something out of nothing and create an environment that was comfortable and warm because he believes that the coffee table is the most powerful social network. So um, just marrying the idea of quality coffee, making sure people are happy and bringing people together was was his goal. And in terms of me, I've, I've been in the business since day one with my dad and I, I was never a big fan of school because I felt like I was forced to learn stuff I wasn't interested in from people who I didn't think were interesting enough. So I learned on my own by helping my dad after school almost seven days a week and 
dropped out of college and at at around the age of 18 started running the company he gave me the opportunity and at that point it was just one store so him and I would work behind the counter together um seven days a week and it really just it was very organic for us we just wanted to make sure we did the best job we can with each customer and uh you know slowly but surely lines built up and people wanted us to open more locations so uh, as as our as our confidence in what we were doing grew our ambition to share fills with more people and more communities grew uh, and one of those communities is now washington dc right you've you're opening we're uh, super yes absolutely we have three open we just opened our dupont circle store 19th in connecticut and we have one in adams morgan one in the navy yards and we have uh multiple coming up so we're very excited about the uh um uh community in dc and sharing fills with more people there how many stores total around the country Today. Almost 50. 50, wow. And you About know that, that the Navy Yard store is directly across the street from my brewery. Is that right? Blue right. Jacket. Oh, right. that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I love that brewery. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. Totally. We, we would say. go there and hang out um, when when I was visiting when I was visiting the Navy Yards. Like yeah, I yeah. always want to go there and hang out because it was so excellent. And it's, it's like fun. the coolest environment in the neighborhood. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, and because we were the f- kind of the first ones down there, too. So it's been really fun to okay. see the whole neighborhood build up. But yeah, we have there's a close connection between the Blue Jacket staff and the Phil's Coffee. Staff. Oh, nice! Oh, that's you know, awesome. They're trading totally. coffee and beers all day. It's great. So, it's Jacob, cool. you're you're I, in my neighborhood. You're right down the street or up the street from my apartment in Adams Morgan, and okay. I I go in the afternoons on the weekends because I drink caffeinated in the morning and I need to have a decaf. For to me, what's unbelievable is how good the decaf is. I mean, yes, our it, decafs it, are it's, spectacular. It's incredible, and you know when you think about like what you're trying to do with one, you know one customer at a time and to keep that core value um, when you get a cup of coffee, at least when I get a cup of coffee from the server behind the bar, she always says the same thing every weekend, which is um, tell me if this is perfect for you, which, you know, it always is. It's the consistency too. Yeah. So it's just that the decaf is incredible and everybody is just kind of the only, my only complaint is you can't, you can't find a place to sit down ever because people set up shop yes. for the day. Joy- Joy, the day. Joy, my my dad would say, "Bump into people, get to know a stranger." Well, <laughs> yeah, you could say. do that. Spill yeah, some coffee on them. But uh, no, I'm thrilled to see the Dupont Circle because I. So we work at Dupont Circle just below it, and I live at Adams Morgan, so I'm all set. That's You're well. Please check cool. it out and give us some feedback because we we want to make sure we're doing the best best we can in terms of decaf. Try half Sumatra decaf, half Colombian. You can get it black or try it with just a little bit of honey and a little okay. bit of cream, and I'm, it will blow your mind away. I'm drinking the Ethiopian, which I love. You got to try the mixture. Okay. You can get in half Ethiopian. Half. There's over four million ways to enjoy your fills, so there's like, there's, <laughs> there's so but much. You know, you know what else you have that you should just tell us about? Because I haven't tried it, but everybody orders it, and I see in the menu is the mojito, the tea mojito. Yeah. So the mojito is a wonderful, unique drink, and. Uh, we it's 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 such a shocker of a drink that we have you know it, it for a lot of new timers that come in that hear about fills that is the drink they hear about and for me i always want to make sure that their perception of fills is much broader than just the mojito because the mojito is a sweeter iced drink with muddled mint and you you can get it less sweet and custom however you want but there's so much more to fills than the mojito, even though it is spectacular. If you like, you know, iced and you like sweet and you like mint, you will love yeah. it. But there's 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 so many different there's so much variety. So, 
you know, one of our challenges is to continue to um, make it a little bit easier for people to understand what Phil's is earlier in their in their visits. So if you come for your first time and you've heard about Phil's from a friend and you read about it, it's going to be good because you under you, you got a taste of it already. But if you're a serendipitous first timer who just walks by and sees coffee and you're like, where the hell is the latte? Where the hell is the cappuccino? Right. Um, you know, obviously we hire great people who will call, ideally identify a first timer and call them over and just try to explain the process and adapt it so that, you know, if they're in a rush, we're going to be quicker and just try to make them something great that they can walk out happily. Well, but it's, the more, it's worth you, the, the more you understand Phil's, the more you love it. Um, as, uh, Greg, as Jake was talking about his team coming over mm -hmm. to the brewery yeah. in the Navy Yard. Um, it was making me think that you're also kind of creating community places uh, through what you do. 100%. And uh, I want to I go back to how you kind of yeah, came totally, to D.C. Yeah, in the yeah. first place. You were talking a little bit about mm -hmm. your own kind of origin story in terms of getting involved in beer. How did you end up in D.C.? And then what are some of your goals for what you're doing with the different establishments in the yeah, restaurant Yeah, group? totally. So, like I said, I so I, I went, I, I made it through my undergrad career, but uh, I also um, decided to leave academia at a certain point. So, I graduated and then moved to D.C. and uh, went to Georgetown for grad school. Uh, back in 2002, made it through, and again, like I said, I was going to—I was supposed to be a professor of modernist fiction. So D.H. Lawrence, James Joyce, E.M. Forrester, Virginia Woolf—like that was my thing. I talked about it's crazy; it brings back some memories just talking about it now. But uh, critical theory and, and things like that. So that's what I was supposed to do. Two years in down here, I just lost steam, and at that time, a good friend of mine from from undergrad up in Vermont. Uh, was was acting in D.C., and therefore he was also bartending in D.C. to make ends meet. And he was working at a place called the Brickskeller, which was uh, America's Le first beer right? bar. Yeah, opened yeah. in 1957. In 1957, they had 25 different beers on their menu, which is insane to think about, about back then. Uh, and by the time I, I showed up in 2004, uh, they had about 2,000 bottles on the menu. So I got in there. I'd uh, never worked in a restaurant before. Um, it seemed interesting. I loved beer at that point. I'll be honest. It was still a little bit more for the intoxicating, uh, possibilities <laughs> of it rather than the, uh, more cultural, historic and, uh, and, and, you know, and flavorful opportunities. But I quickly, I got in there and I, I became enthralled and I found a new, um, uh, a new a new focus for my intellectual acumen and I I started to just trade in my books for beers and started to study beer in the same way I had studied uh, literature uh, and it became this incredible lens uh, through which to access history culture so society religion uh, you name it and, and I just became obsessed started tasting everything I could traveling meeting everyone I could and uh, from there uh, Got, uh, garnered the interest of Michael Babin, who's the founder of Neighborhood Restaurant Group. He was about to, he had just opened his very first um, beer place in 2006. It's called Rustico. It's still going strong in Alexandria, Virginia. And at that time, if you wanted craft beer on draft inside the Beltway in DC, uh, Northern Virginia, Maryland, there were only three places you could get craft beer on draft. Think about that. Like if you didn't want Bud, or, or, you know, Miller, and you wanted something else, there were three places 
just 12 years ago you could get it. Just and 12 of, years ago. Yeah, and one That's of those remarkable. was Rustico. And the other one was the Brick Skeller. And the third was Pizzeria Paradiso, uh, which I had been going to as well when I was at Georgetown. So anyways, it all came together. I met Michael. I told him I wanted to open... Um, I wanted to go along the path. I wanted to open bars and restaurants that could celebrate beer and bring the kind of care and service and uh, respect for beer that had been so often afforded to wine and spirits. I wanted to pair it with food. I wanted to just do And back then, this was not happening. And, and it also wasn't profitable. So somehow, I was able to convince Michael to bring me in to Rustico, let me take over the beer program. And we, we really altered the, the restaurant a lot. We changed it up, uh, made it a lot about beer and food pairing, and kind of the rest is history. I mean, that was our, our fourth restaurant. Uh, we had a wine shop. And today we have 19 different uh, bars, restaurants, and, and, and shops in the D.C. area. So you were right up there with uh, Jacob's dad, Phil, who went into 1,100 coffee shops. You <laughs> right. must have you know, oh, yeah, yeah. been oh, to at least 1,100 I drank 1,100 bars. beers. <laughs> exactly. uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was just, again, uh, Jacob said earlier, serendipity. That's really what it was. It, you know, some of it was right place, right time. It was... I had some passion that I was looking to place elsewhere, uh, frankly, and I, I was just done with academia. I was done with books and publishing for publishing's sake and all the other things, and I was looking for a new place to pour uh, my, my, my thought and, and, and all of my activity, and beer was it. Well, I'm really fascinated by this idea, and I'd love you both to comment on it, you too, Deb. Uh, when you talk about beer as a lens into culture and history, uh, and I, I think of coffee the same way, in a sense, in terms of the journey that uh, Jacob described for his dad. What do you What do you mean by that? Like, what do you learn about culture? What do you learn about history through beer? Yeah, and, and this goes back to what you were saying about community. So our group is called the Neighborhood Restaurant Group. It began in 97, Evening Star Cafe in Delray and Alexandria, right? It's still going strong now, 20-plus years. Amazing place. It was built to be a community center. That's what these places are. They're places for people who live near each other to get out of their homes, get together, and share food and drink uh, and and party and socialize and get to know each other and learn from each other. And so w when, when I came into this, I already saw this and I thought, this is great. This is what we've been doing with our families since we were little children, right? Is just eating and drinking. It's the best thing in life, eating and drinking with family and friends. So now we're just doing it in a community space that's a restaurant or bar. And I come in and say, let's build experiences around our beer and food, or wine and food, coffee. And so it is incredible to be able to pour somebody a beer, say made by Trappist monks in, uh, in Belgium, in Wallonia, in the south on the French border, and to be able to say, taste this beer, enjoy it, they taste it, they drink it, uh, the, 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 the tactile senses, the aromatic pleasures are all there, but then we unpack it and talk about the history of the brewery, talk about what Trappist monasticism is, uh, talk about, you know, why they brew, how long they've brewed, what they're, what they are, are brewing today. Why did they choose to make this style of beer? Uh, you know, and, and just unpack it and build that experience around it. And it just makes the, the, the experience the, the flavors become so much more vibrant when they, when you kind of wed the, I think the intellectual to the, uh, the more visceral pleasures of, of drink. And what, what beer is that? The Trappist well, there's a number uh, of uh, there's two different Trappist monasteries on the French border. One is called Rochefort, but the one I was thinking about specifically is called Orval, uh, from the Val d'Or, uh, the Valley of Gold, and they make one kind of beer. It is a dry sort of farmhouse style ale that's funky. It has this uh, 
yeast called Britannomyces, which winemakers hate, beer makers love. It's a kind of yeast that brings earthy, slightly barnyardy, f- funky flavors, raw, ripe fruit flavors, pineapple and things like that to the beer. It's bone dry, heavily effervescent like champagne. Uh, it comes in this cool art deco bottle with high shoulders. It's just uh, a beautiful, uh, beautiful beer that has inspired many American brewers. Uh, Jacob, when it, when it comes to coffee and culture and history, how do you uh, experience those connections? It's very similar. I think, uh, you know, first and foremost, um, people want uh, environment. People are searching for great environments to to spend time in. And I think it's happening more and more, particularly in the urban environments where people don't have all their family there. So they want to feel connected. So similarly, we want to make sure we we intentionally design the environment um, that kind of acts as a a place where people could... um, be near a stranger and connect with friends and socialize. So I think that's that's super important. Um, in terms of learning more about coffee, again, we believe in personalization. So the, the we have a very high touch experience. We have a uh, a lot of people that work in our stores who are willing to connect and have conversations with people who want to learn more about coffee. And in some cases, we'll do coffee tastings and host them in our community table in our stores where the store leader personally would, you know, invite some of the regulars or people who'd be interested to sign up and they would sit down and uh, do do a pretty broad tasting. So you can learn as much as you want, um, but only if you want. We We won't, we don't want to push it on you or make you feel stupid for not knowing something. Um, and it's surprising how many people, you know, how many, how many people don't, um, don't know some of the basics, right? And that's okay. Uh, and I look at it as our job to educate them lightly. And, uh, um, if they, if they, again, if they want to learn more, they, they, they can learn more. We want to make sure we have all the answers for them. Well, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking about why when I started to like beer. So I drank it in college, but I wouldn't say that I liked it at all. I would drink it. I wouldn't it. even call it beer. No, I wouldn't even call it beer. Uh, yeah. Okay, same. <laughs> but no, so here's a little little personal tidbit. So I, <laughs> when I got pregnant and had my daughter, I was 46 years old. So right there, that's you know, pretty late in life, and I was having a really hard time breastfeeding. And I called my my one of my best friends who had three kids and one on the way, and she knew everything about everything when it came to babies. So I called her one night. I was, like, crying. I said, I'm having a hard time nursing. And she said, I'm coming right over, and I'm bringing you a bottle of beer. I'm like, I, I can't drink beer. I'm, I'm nursing. I can't, can't give that to my baby. She's like, yes, you can. She brought me over a Sierra Nevada. Uh, and I don't like hops anymore. I used to like, when I first started drinking beer, I kind of was attracted to it. Now I can't. Now I'm more into the, the malts. But she brought me a... Uh, a six pack and she said here's one bottle a night just drink this beer and you'll you know have no problem nursing and she was right which of course it, a lot of women know that if you have it not an, I don't I don't think they drink wine or mixed drinks but a beer which helps with what they call let down which is let, letting the milk flow so that's how I started drinking beer it's a gentle yeah it's it's not it's, a rela- it's just a relaxer it's, though it's mild that's yeah. all it is and yeah. Sierra Nevada is probably pale ale that in bottle is I think like Four and a half percent alcohol, or something like that. Right, so, so it's, it's low alcohol. Mild. It was enough yeah, to yeah. to change my my nursing right. uh, experience for that's me a, and my that's my a child. Cool story. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the truth too. Yeah. 
Deb, I always feel like you and I at Share Our Strength, having been there for 34 years, have like the best job in the world. And I feel that way every day of the week, except for the week, the day that we have guests on this show, because I'd say between Greg and Jacob, I think they have better jobs than we do. Yeah, they have uh, good jobs. This just sounds really, I'm well, sitting here thinking like, why aren't I learning more about the Trappist know, monks and their beer? When you talk about both of you are talking about your passions and both of you came to this. I mean, I know. Jacob, you were, I know you were doing stuff with your dad from an early age, but you were also, you know, trying to figure out what you wanted to do in, in college and trying other things and you were into sports and, you know, you found your passion with coffee. You found your passion with beer. And not only is this podcast add passion and stir, but the, the core value of Share of Strength is to find a way for people to share their passions, their talent, right, what they care about in this fight to end childhood hunger. And so we meet you know, incredible people who, you know, for a long time, chefs and restaurateurs, but now much more broad, much more diverse. And to talk to people who are so passionate about their craft, and I know um, you're going to be doing stuff with us. Uh, you already have through yeah, yeah, yeah. the Neighborhood Restaurant Group. And Jacob, I hope that we can find ways to work together, both in San Francisco and around the country, in the hospitality. Absolutely. I know you're, you know, one thing I read about you is that one of the core values is uh, that you wanted to bring to your customers, love and hospitality. And I just love that mm-hmm. because, boy, if you can provide love and hospitality to your customer, they're coming back. People are looking yeah. for it. That's right. Well, one of the things I shared with our uh, our colleagues this morning was, you know, a common thread on the podcast, particularly among many of the chefs that we've usually had on, is so many of them were, and you kind of said a version of this, Greg, they were supposed to be doing <laughs> something else, right? They were, many of them were pre-med, some of them were law or business or literature, whatever it was, they were supposed to be doing something else, but through some combination of some event, whether it was a, a frustration or a failure or something, just... Uh, you know, prompted them to revert back to what they were really passionate about in the first place and maybe just didn't believe in themselves enough to to do it at first or it didn't seem socially acceptable or what their parents had in mind. Uh, but once they once they did it, just like both of you, you know, they became wildly successful. Yeah. I think that I mean, that's it's so cool to meet people like that. And I meet people like that every day. And I have to say that, you know, you're right. You hit it. I mean, there's some there's some form of happenstance and some form of, you know, it's not like one day you wake up and you're like, I need to change my life. It's been coming on for some time. You've been sensing that something is not quite right. Maybe you're going through the motions. Maybe you're doing it for other people. And I have to say that my parents were the best, un, completely unexpected on my end too. Like I, I, I've always been in school, always just, I thought I'd stay in school forever. I'd be a professor, you know? And when I told them I was leaving grad school, I wasn't going to be a professor anymore. And I was going to, uh, embrace because I'd started bartending on the side to kind of see at the brick scale, see what was going to happen. And I was like, I'm going to go there full time and I'm going to see if this restaurant thing works out. It, to my complete and utter shock, they were like, sounds good. And I, I, I was blown away. I thought it was going to be a drag out fight. I didn't think it was going to go, you know, I thought they're going to be like, are you crazy and everything? But they got completely behind me. And uh, I just think that's a good thing for people to think about, especially as their kids are coming up. And you're right, the societal thing, like getting involved, you know, you go to school for all these things and then just like to stop and go work in restaurants. The great thing is over the past 10, 20 years, 10, 15 years, restaurants 
uh, coffee shops, this whole industry has come up in estimation. And it's not just something you do on the side or you do at night when you're going to college anymore. It's a real anymore. profession. It's a real profession. Yeah. And we've been and very well respected. It right? is and, now. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you all have been there the whole time. It's the nation and things like that. You've seen this happen. Um, and, and I think that is great. Um, that it's become that way. We have a ways to go. I still think it's not necessarily as respected as it could be, but it's, it's been great. And for us, it's been our motto. When we bring people in who are working with us is to just to convince them that this is a profession. This is not just a, a part-time gig. And it's a great way it's to- not a detour. Right? Yeah, it's, it's not, not a, a career detour. detour. It's, it's not a just a way path. to get a little extra money. When you're here, you're, you're joining us in providing our guests with amazing hospitality, with a memorable experience, uh, and, and and that's important. And I think it's, it's been great. The respect that's gone into creating that culture. I think restaurant service has gone up. Uh, restaurants themselves have gotten better and better and better because of the respect that's been afforded them. I'm curious um, for both of you, since you're both so passionate about your work and that you found your passion, you're living it, what you look for um, when you're hiring. So obviously passion, but you know, I think of I was thinking of Danny Meyer, Jacob, when I was reading about you, uh, just about the hospitality and how important that is to you and to your stores. Um, so clearly hospitality is a thing you look for, but how do you, when you're talking to people that are coming in to work for you, what is it that you're asking or probing to make sure that they have that hospitality quality? Yeah, that's super important. I think first and foremost, the culture that we're trying to create for our team is one where they can be themselves. In a lot of places, you have to button up and be what the paper tells you to be. And it feels it's really important to me for people to be their their authentic self. And I think that the best service is done is 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 when it's done from the heart and it's authentic. So we actually put a lot of emphasis in the hiring process because if we're going to embrace and empower people to be themselves and do the best they can to deliver the best experience, then we have to make sure we're hiring people who have a predisposition to sharing our values so that very naturally and organically they're inclined to deliver that experience that we want. Of course, we have training to help guide and support, but we put a lot of emphasis on the hiring. So the framework for hiring is, uh, I call it the CCE, which is character, competence, and experience. Start entry level, there's a lot more emphasis on the character than there is on the experience. So for baristas, we, we care less about the resume and care more about the individual, what they're passionate about, what they value. Um, we've identified five core characteristics that uh, we ask questions based on. And, you know, if we feel like they, they have uh, those characteristics, then it's likely that they're going to enjoy working at Phil's and be a good fit. And it works out. And in terms of competence, it's different than experience because you can have many years of experience on your resume, but that doesn't necessarily translate to high performance. Um, but competence and experience both become a little bit more important as we bring on more senior level folks, but we never compromise on the character. So that's the framework we use. And um, the most important ones to me are character and competence. Uh, so that's that's been helpful. And, and I personally, to this day, interview and connect with every single store leader candidate because each of our store, the store leader is like the fill of their store and make they... Ultimately, they have a tremendous amount of influence on the success of the customer experience, the culture, and the business. So strategically, if we put a lot of effort towards bringing on and engaging and developing and 
just inspiring the best possible store leaders and staying close to them as a CEO, even if we have hundreds of stores, is going to be super important because that will translate to their team and ultimately the customer. So you got to take care of your internal community. And that starts with, with the hiring and it ends with leadership. Boy, that sounds like so similar to the way we hire, you know, hire for personality, train for skill. Um, is really very close to what we what we do. Bill, I don't know if you know this, but we have a staffer, uh, Jacob. I meant to tell you this in an email and I forgot. We have a staffer who works for Share Strength that works for you, too. Her name is okay. Rhea. Yeah, she works in the Adams which, Morgan store, which I thought was great. And she's and she's, um, she's a star for us too. She, she's I was going to say she's she's the hospitality that she shows at the organization, which is really important to us because hospitality doesn't just live in the hospitality world, right? It lives at Share Strength in a really important way to make sure that you know everything from our donors to our you know to the to the corporate partners we work with and the chefs and the sommeliers and the, everybody um, is feeling that they understand what the organization is that they're appreciated and all of that. So totally. she's she's to terrific. Point too, to well that that's I actually um when I was in DC uh, a few months ago came uh, met her and connected with her and she told me about this. So that's that's oh, awesome. Great. And yeah. and to Greg's point like in our DuPont circle I was so I I I went to the store and I wanted to meet everybody before it opened so I did and I we went around in a circle and surprisingly multiple I mean, there's so much diversity amongst the team, but there's a few people who left government to come join and be in the environment, be in the Phil's environment. And I think um, they they uh, they want they want something different and fresh. They want to feel connected with people. They want to be part of kindness. They want to be part of um, uh, community. So I, I think it's you know more and more uh, as I go along and I I meet people out in the stores who work with us. It's amazing to hear their their backstories. There's a just a ton of talented people who are looking for meaning, and uh, the hard part is, you know, when you go so long and study something in school, it's such a it's 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 kind of idiotic to me that you have to make that much of a loaded decision at that early in your life without having exposure to a lot of things that help, um, you know, guide you and and show you what what you're gonna love the most. So, but I just see a lot of people also who who feel stuck in, in what they've done. So kudos to, to Greg for having the courage to do what you've done. It's like, it's it's rare to find that, but I think it's happening more and more. People who studied one discipline and had the courage to get out of it because they wanted to do something they loved. I'd say, I think it's safe to say for those who are looking for kindness, uh, government is not where you would <laughs> where you would stay for long right now. A lot of decisions are made in beer houses and coffee shops. If you think about it, there's a lot of important decisions made. So we can we can hopefully over time influence it with enough caffeine and enough booze and a good environment. Yeah, I think that I, I totally agree. It's the the similarities between all three of our businesses are are massive. I mean, we're all looking for the same types of people of course they're great people but I, I think we've you know we have found so many people especially I think DC is probably a big one for this that are leaving government or law or grad school or even undergrad I mean and coming to Phil's and Church Key or you know our group or to share our strength looking for new opportunities that frankly weren't presented to you in freshman year in college, to Jacob's point, you know what I mean? Like, no, that's right. That's so not many, really on the list, right? Not, no, I know exactly. It's like you're supposed to, you're do, you know, doctor, lawyer, uh, Wall Street. Still, you know, after all this time, all this time, it hasn't changed. Right? And that's what's cool when you come to DC. I think um, if you have 
some courage about it, whether it's because you just absolutely can't stand what you're doing or you really want something new, you'll meet so many cool people and find out about so many opportunities that you just never imagined existed uh, when you're in the ivory tower. So. I think that's right. Uh, Jacob, Debbie was talking a little bit about uh, kind of the values that are associated uh, with Phil's. She was talking about love and hospitality. There, I also think of it on kind of a global level having to do with the environment and sustainability and organic. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how that uh, fits with, with the company? Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, so first off, starting at the top of the supply chain, uh, there's a few organizations, Food for Sar- Farmers and World Coffee Research, that every pound we purchase, um, a certain portion, specifically five cents, four cents, would go to Food for Farmers and one cent to the coffee research organization. But Food for Farmers is really interesting. And, um, you know, you, you don't know unless you're there and have empathy for what's happening. And the seasonality has a lot to do with the um, health of people's days because in the high season you're able to make some money and get some food and have a good good um, good season but during the low season uh, you know there's not a lot of uh, you know sustainable consistent income so food for farmers is about diversifying um, the the crops that you can grow so that year-round families could uh, have a have a consistent source of income, so that's super important. And we we're, we get a report every quarter, and we're you know proud to be able to help contribute in um, uh, education in terms of how to grow different things, and also an actual kickstart to um, uh, have people help them actually go through the process. So that's 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 really important. Having connecting and having empathy for the people across the supply chain. Um, in terms of, uh, products, you know, I mean, we're constantly trying to improve. We're not perfect, but we're, we're, we're getting better. Like our cups are compostable, uh, lids, we should be getting them any month now. They're going to be fully compostable, um, bags. Uh, so we're, we're, we're doing, you know, 20 different things to continually improve, um, and making sure we're, we're, uh, you know, just being good to our environment. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is that like the best, the best form of giving back is giving space. So we really, uh, embrace the community and allow them to, um, so one, here's a good example is in Adams Morgan. Um, and I don't know if this is done every day, but there's a passionate yoga teacher who loves teaching yoga and doesn't have a studio, but uses our store to teach it before the coffee shop opens. So there's a space for, for her to, to have yoga. Um, art shows all of the art is local so it's not like we're sending art to stores from a corporate office um uh, there's you know a passionate jewelry maker giving her a space on a busy saturday on the corner of the community table so you know she can share the story of her jewelry and maybe um you know get get people to get excited about it so i think that um you know, it comes in all, all different forms and sizes, but I'd say the most exciting stuff we're doing right now, uh, and you can kind of feel the impact you're making because we get pictures and videos is the stuff we're doing in the different origin um, countries uh, with Food for Farmers. You know, you've both talked about, um, I guess, the some of the things that differentiate you, and a lot of it has to do with the just the care and the intentionality uh, that you bring to producing the product, but in a marketplace that is so competitive 
And so, so uh, you know, if you're if you're Phil's and you're thinking about Starbucks and Pete's and all the other coffee companies, or Greg, if you're thinking about all of the you know the beers and the places where people can get beer, what? How are you intentional about differentiating yourselves beyond yeah. just the best possible product we can produce? Or right. maybe and that's it. Yeah. Well, it's you're, it's not, and that's the what we've always preached is. Just having craft beer does not a craft beer bar, restaurant, or retail shop make, right? If you have cash or credit, you can probably, and you're a publican, you can get your hands on 90% of the beers that I can get my hands on. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a difficult thing, but through relationships, things like you can get them. That's not the hard part. The hard part is echoing the passion of the producer in the daily work you do to make that product taste as the producer intended. So that's always our goal, is to build that experience around that product through service, through product knowledge, uh, through cleaning. I mean, dispensing beer on tap, it seems like a simple thing, but we are maniacal about our cleaning regimen to make sure that the beers taste the way they would at that producer's brewery. Uh, we temperature control our draft lines. So as with wine, you don't drink Zinfandel and Cabernet at the same time you drink champagne. Same with beer. Pilsners dispense at cooler temps. Br- Russian Imperial Stouts and Belgian Strong Dark Hills dispense at warmer temps, temps like mid-50s. We were actually the first people in the United States to ever do that at Church Key with our draft system. Uh, these are the ways that we make sure to differentiate, but it's also not really even a choice for us. It's like, you know, how could we buy these special beers from these producers who spend so much time to make them taste just so and not do the same with their beers table side, you know, not pair them with incredible dishes or just to say like, oh, that'll go with your wings and your pizza. No, like it can go with so much more. So that's really a big thing for us in differentiation. So it's, it's all, I mean, it relates in a way to what Jacob was saying about authenticity, right? You know, when you're talking about how you want that experience to be exactly the way the the brewer made it, there's a commitment to that authenticity, I guess. And people respond yeah. to that. Oh, absolutely. Right? People respond to authentic personalities and authentic communication right. more than anything. And again, it's, it's, so, co- it's costly. And it's, it's expensive. Training your staff every single day. I mean, we have this incredible training regimen. If you come to Church Key and you want to be a server, you, you go through 10 days of intensive training that begins with a beer tasting, goes into service, and finishes with a pairing class. 10 days in a row. Like, a lot of people don't make it through, you know, and, and, but that's okay. You know, we, we get, by the end of it, we have passionate people who want to be there, who love what they're doing, and can't wait to offer the experience that they just had to the guest. And Jacob, in terms of your intentionality about differentiating, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, um, to Greg's point, you can get, uh, you know, coffee, beer, and you you can get it at a lot of different places. For coffee, I would have to say that um, convenience plays a major role in people's decision making. Um, And you can look at that as a plus or a minus. I mean, so hence Starbucks' strategy to be everywhere. Like, if if Starbucks is a block away and you rate it a six out of 10 for your taste buds, and let's say, you know, you, you love fills and to you, it's a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, but it's six blocks away and it's the morning and you have to make a decision, you know, which one are you going to choose? And 
I'd like to think that people are are always going to choose fills, but you know what? That's not the reality. The reality is that convenience plays a significant role in people's decision-making for beverages accessible as coffee. And the accessibility of coffee quality has risen significantly. So for us, we want to innovate on experiences. So what that means is that when you walk into fills and you stand in line and you order with the barista, that's that's a real personal experience. But if you're someone who loves the product quality but values convenience, you know, we you can now order fills through the fills mobile app. So you have zero wait time. And, you know, you can argue, well, well, doesn't that take away from the experience? And I could say, well, there's the fact is there's a lot of people who would who would who are not having their fills because they don't have the time. So now we have a multi an alternative experience. So I think that we really have to think about everybody and we we have to continue um, making fills more accessible without the any expense or compromise on on the quality and i think that just continuing to think about meeting the need state of different customers is is really important so i think that quality is number one um but uh accessibility and and convenience is going to be number two if we if we truly want to make fills part of more and more people's days so jacob is is it possible to and you know you don't have to tell us your entire growth plan but in general is it possible to get much bigger than you are you're near 50 now or 48 or whatever you said could you be 500 stores and still have the experience yes yes we could we have been working over the past few years extremely hard figuring out how to scale quality and scale the experience and believe it or not you have to if you want to do it right you have to not worry about scalability and just focus on excellence once you achieve excellence, then you have to rationalize that through operationalizing it and scaling it. So we feel like we're starting, we've started, and we've we've been pulling from a terrific foundation of quality and excellence, and putting in the right hiring practices, as I mentioned, putting the right training practices. As Greg mentioned, like we spend, we spend almost five thousand dollars to train one team member. I mean, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but we put we put that in investment. It's fifteen day training because. We think it's super important. Leadership, investing significantly in the store leaders. So these are all different pillars and ingredients that we have operationalized and um, feel quite confident that we can we can grow and actually only get better and or at the very least um, preserve the the quality. Um, so we think we can we can we can be in a thousand different communities. And for me, it's not like waking up every day being the most excited about the number. It's really about hearing more and more stories about how we're making a difference in people's days. Like I got a yesterday there was a, a married I posted it on my Instagram and Twitter, but like there was a married married people couple who got married recently and they're obsessed that the 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 guy is obsessed with Phil. So uh, his wife set him up so that yesterday I spent an hour with them sitting down talking about talking about Phil's and it was just like getting the chance to connect with them and meet with them and hear their story. That's excellent. So more things that happen like that really inspire me to want to share Phil's with more people. Exciting future ahead for Phil's. Um, okay, last two things I want to cover with both of you. Um, Debbie and I are always curious about what we think of as kind of uh, to, to take advantage of the expertise we have at the table of what you might call hidden gems. So, 
Greg, if there were a, a place serving great craft beer um, that is worth you know getting to know, but not one of yours, uh, and it doesn't have to be here in D.C., although it's fine if it is, uh, what should people know about? Where might people taste something that, or, or experience something that uh, would just be that, that's been asp- inspiring to you or maybe even aspirational for you? Well, uh, yeah, there's a large amount of places that are inspiring to me and that I think would be worth um, checking out. I do have to say, though, and this might maybe this is too too far afield, but I think when people think about traveling for beer, um, Belgium comes up all the time. And I love Brussels uh, so much. I, I go there as often as I possibly can, and it's an amazing place. Uh, Belgium comes up. Obviously, we have so many places to go in the U.S. today. I mean, you can't go... 10 blocks without running into a brewery. Uh, Vermont uh, is an incredible destination with Hill Farmstead and uh, The Alchemist and Foam Brewers and Burlington. So there's all those. But the hidden gem to me of beer travel that everyone should try to get to at some point in their lives is Franconia in Germany. Yeah, wow. okay. Germany. But, but not just not, not just Munich. This isn't Munich. This is north northern Bavaria, closer to Frankfurt than it is to Munich. And this is uh, the place that still to this day, I believe, has the highest per capita amount of breweries in the world. So every town has two, three, four small breweries uh, making very basic beers on the surface. Crisp, refreshing, unfiltered lagers we call Keller beer. Some of them are making smoke beer that tastes like bacon, Rauch beers of Germany. Um, Some are making some wheat beers, uh, but just the most delicious, minerally lagers you'll ever have, fresh from the source, and there's no pretense. These guys do not understand the rock star status of some Belgian and American brewers. If you ask, if you dig too deep as to why they're doing what they're doing, they distrust you because they don't get it. This is a a trade for them. It is not an art. Uh, And you meet some of the most amazing people. You start in Bamberg, which is an incredible little university city um, where there's uh, wonderful breweries, including Marsbräu, which makes some of the most wonderful German beers out there. There are two really great smoke beer producers, Schlenkerla and Spezial. And from there, you can hire um, coaches to take you out into the countryside to these really small little places that you've never heard of. Uh, that's where I think everybody should So really where do we have German beers in Washington? We have them at Church Key, right? Church Key, yeah, yeah. We mix those in for sure. Yeah. I happen to live on Capitol Hill, and my local is a place called Cafe Berlin, which has yeah. been around for a very yeah, long, long time. time. And yeah. they do a great job of including uh, lesser-known German-style beers on their menu, so check them out locally. Great. And what's the uh, coffee equivalent for you, Jacob? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, like, I think that, being in San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, you know, places like New York, there's a tremendous amount of just single shop owners who are doing some great things. So I, I think there's just so many um, uh, different uh, different uh, uh, options and, and, and coffee companies now. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in D.C., there's there's Compass who's doing good things. Um uh, in San Francisco, there's there's Ritual who's doing good things. So there's just, I mean, all all of them, uh, all all of them, all of them are good. Like all of them are good quality. So I, I just think there's there's so there's so money, um, and it's just can it's just grown. Like in the past decade, the amount of artisanal single shop 
owners and a lot of these people were doing professional jobs before and they they've moved into into their passion area so i have a lot of respect and admiration for just a bunch of different companies um uh so i don't need to walk too far if there's no fills around i don't need to walk too too far to find something good that's great well nobody would know better than the two of you uh last question is just tell us what's next i think we have an inkling i think there's more growth ahead for phil's and i think probably for um your your enterprise as well greg but anything special that um you might be getting into that we should know about that you can talk about uh yeah i can talk about like kind of broadly but uh i was really interested you know to hear you talking about jacob talking about like scaling excellence uh it is possible uh it, it definitely is possible it's a wonderful thing is that you can create beautiful experiences and replicate them with fantastic uh training programs and passionate leadership things like that so uh we've been doing that for a long time like i said we started in 97 with a single entity uh michael babin uh stephanie babin the founders had no intention at the time of growing this restaurant group the way it did but it one thing led to another and we have been able to scale excellence locally and so now we are we've been we've been getting a lot of interest and we're really lucky um, for a long time to take some of the things that we do here locally further afield and nationally and we are actively pursuing those opportunities now um, we are we have no intention of bringing uh, church key to uh, another city but we have every intention of bringing the style of beer, um, you know, service and uh, the integrity of the program to other cities and to see if we can yeah, take the neighborhood restaurant group to, to new places. Ooh, that's big. Yeah. Really yeah, big. big. Um, how about at your end, Jacob? I'm just, you know, focused. DuPont just opened recently and we have a few more openings coming up, just making sure we're doing a good job there. Um uh, and you know, if, if we're not, then there's a problem in the system. <laughs> so I shouldn't be worried about the thousand store. <laughs> well, uh, so great to have both of you with us. Uh, Jacob Javers from Phil's coffee, CEO, an incredible, incredible story of your family and your leadership. So thanks for being on ad passion and stir. Thanks for having us. Uh, and Greg Engert, uh, partner and beer director at the Neighborhood Restaurant Group, uh, which started out here in D.C., but it sounds like it's going to be in a lot of other places before too long. Really, really thrilled to have you on. Thank you so much. And, of course, my sister, Debbie Shore. I'm thirsty for both. Now. I know, I know. So am beer, I. And then I want a coffee. Um, and I want to travel. And I yeah, want to go to exactly. the places these guys have been. Um, you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks also to our producer, Woody, Paul Woodle. Uh, and Kelly Griffin, uh, who works with Share Our Strength to make this podcast happen. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.